if you went to India, or Pakistan, uh, or Indonesia, huge populations of the world would laugh at us if they were listening to this conversation. They would say, of course, we're going to take the values that our country was established upon and put them in the classroom, in the madrasas, uh, in the Muslim world. They would not even be ashamed of it. They would just, they would laugh at us if we didn't do it. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us, all from a biblical worldview. I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. And today, we're going to ask the question, should schools be required to post the Ten Commandments on the walls of their classrooms? That's what one bill in Texas has recently proposed. Is this a common sense reminder of who we are as people and Americans? Or is it the American Taliban imposing their religion on the innocent? That's the conversation we're going to have today. With me are a couple of lawyers, one of whom is also a member of the Texas state legislature and a sponsor of SB 1515, which is the bill to put the Ten Commandments in the Texas classroom. That's Representative Matt Shaper, Representative Shaper. Thank you for joining me today. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so glad to have you. In addition, we have another Texas lawyer, Sam Webb. He's a friend. He's an attorney in the Tex in the Houston, Texas area. He's an adjunct professor at Trinity Law School in Santa Ana, California, as well. He is, and he always wants everyone to know, a graduate of Texas A&M University and also the Texas Tech University School of Law and Reformed Theological Seminary. So he has this interesting theological and legal combination. He's also, most importantly, married with three kids, serves as an elder at the University Park Baptist Church. Sam, good to see you today. Thanks for having me, Joseph. Well, gentlemen, um, before we get into the the meat of this, uh, I, I want to just get a sense of who you guys are a little bit, introduce yourselves to, to our audience about how you uh, have come to be people who go on podcasts and, and talk about the Ten Commandments on the walls and legislation. And Representative Schaefer, I, I'll, I'll start with you. Give me a bit of your journey um, from, you know, regular guy Texan, uh, presumably to uh, state legislator there. Well, that's a uh, tough question to answer, but I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I, I grew up poor uh, out in the country uh, in Texas, uh, worked nearly every manual labor job you can imagine all the way up through probably almost to my senior year of college when I got a little bank clerk job and got to work in the air conditioning. And uh, that, that was awesome. Um, but always grew up. Uh, in a Christian household, kind of from a, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod background, uh, and was always interested in what was happening uh, in our country. You know, in, in that rural culture I grew up with, there was a bunch of old uh, Germans uh, that, you know, part of the tradition was, you know, on Sunday afternoon, people would visit people's homes, and I would sit and listen to the older men talk. And they would often talk about what's happening in the country. And for whatever reason, I was always interested. You know, I read the papers. Uh, I read any political magazines. I read William F. Buckley, people like that, that I could get my hands on. But I had no political connections. Uh, and, and I kind of just got interested in college uh, at that time. And uh, ultimately, 
um, got married, went on to law school, joined the Navy Reserves at the same time. Uh, and I'll condense a lot of this, but uh, served a, a tour in Afghanistan. And when I got back to Afghanistan, uh, the people in my community were looking for someone to replace uh, the retiring state representative there. And uh, they, they asked me to run. And I had actually been praying about it. And, and, and the timing, I felt like, was God's timing. He ultimately, I got in the race, and then he decided not to retire. And so I actually had to run against an incumbent. <laughs> and, uh, and I won. And, yeah, <laughs> it was very awkward. I actually expected him to endorse me. All the people that had originally supported him were getting behind me. And he was starting to have some health issues. But for whatever reason, he changed his mind. But I think, you know, it just caused me to get out and work and knocked on thousands of doors, literally, till I had a callus on my thumb from ringing doorbells. And I've always just kind of had this uh, sense that, you know, the United States is special. I do believe that there's divine providence that came into to play uh, in the founding of our country. You know, my my favorite founding fathers really you know, like John Adams and and, and John Quincy Adams. Uh, named my daughter after John Quincy. My daughter's name is Quincy, and uh, I'm kind of in the reformed uh, background, like like Sam is. I believe in a big God, a sovereign God, and I believe that. Every ruler, every person in authority, whether you are a county commissioner, city councilman, state representative, senator, or president of the United States, your first obligation is to worship God. You just can't escape it. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Every time it talks about the successes and failures of, of the nation of Israel, of, of, of other nations, didn't worship God. It's when they fell out of step walking with God, that judgment came on the nation, that judge, judgment came on that individual king or ruler. And we have to remember that as Christians, that our first obligation is to worship God. Our first obligation is to, to seek His glory. And certainly I've done that imperfectly as a legislator, uh, not only in the way I've legislated, but but at times how I've interacted on social media or, or, or with constituents. But I, you know, I believe the Holy Spirit keeps bringing me back to that place where I have to worship God, seek Him, try to walk with Him, and to the best of my ability, uh, value what God values. And so where I have clear commandments in the in Scripture to, to love my wife, to, to protect God's design for the family, to acknowledge God's design for the individual, male and female, to acknowledge... Uh, the protection over children, the innocent in the womb, uh, to care for the widow and the orphan, to um, to respect other people's property, um, to to say what is Caesar and what is God's, um, you know, and 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 the family belongs to God, the church belongs to God, and so when the government would want to step into the family and the church, that is a boundary you cannot go there now. The Bible doesn't tell me to do a property tax or a sales tax or what percentage, but it, it does tell me to 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 honor God uh, and to and, and we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. You know that Decalogue. You know all those those civil government principles that are built into our nation's history and tradition. Uh, those are instructive for how we govern, and so and we are going to get into the, yeah. the Ten Commandments uh, for sure. And I love the way you say that. It's just 
It's just, you know, our act of worshiping God, and we think of that as often something that happens on Sunday morning, and certainly it does. But the the way you live your life, do you love what God loves? Do you hate the things that God hates? Are we trying to think his thoughts about everything? And that's that's one of the, the tests of lawmaking. Sam Webb, I want to ask you as well, just give me a bit of your background. You are not an elected official yet. Um, that's not me prophesying anything, but uh, just acknowledging the state of the matter at the moment. But you are certainly somebody who cares and thinks. How did you come to be, uh, you know, interested in in the state of the world and and how we as Christians can apply God's truth to it? Yeah, I appreciate the question, Joseph. Um, I, I'm a lot like Matt in the sense that I was raised in a very blue collar family, uh, born and raised kind of east of Houston. Uh, in a family that has roots up in Lufkin, Texas, and, and deep East Texas, uh, and so uh, was raised in what I would say was a very culturally Christian home. Uh, so we didn't go to church on Sunday. I, I never had gone to church uh, um, growing up, you know, for worship service outside of a few times with extended family or for weddings and funerals, things like that. Uh, and so wasn't wasn't a church kid but was a very strong, uh, proud Texan and American and had Bibles on our end tables and read David and Goliath uh, stories and Noah's Ark stories growing up as a kid, uh, which is kind of a whole conversation in itself about cultural Christianity. But the the, the cultural Christianity I grew up in uh, ended up being the seedbed for uh, the, the seed of the gospel that was eventually uh, rooted uh, during my time at Texas A&M. Um, I, I, you know, there's a longer story there, but but the, the, the short story is that when 9-11 happened, uh, I went to church the next Sunday by myself, I woke up Sunday morning, told my parents uh, I was going to go to church on, uh, it would have been September 16th, uh, and, uh, and went to church. And I did it because I was a good Texan and a good American, and uh, I knew I wasn't uh, I wasn't one of the bad guys, and so I was going to go to church and, and, and ask God to bless America in the midst of such tragedy on 9-11. And then, you know, that kind of fast forwards through into college where I, I, I think I finally came to faith in college. But when I went to college after 9-11, before I became a Christian, probably about three-year period, I was very interested in politics. Uh, started when uh, uh, my governor, George W. Bush, was elected president in 2000. I remember staying up and watching the, the ballot um, uh, you know, coverage uh, down in Florida between Gore and, and Bush. So it started in, in 2000, intensified with 9-11, uh, and then I went to college fully anticipating and being involved in all these political clubs, um, uh, fully expecting to go to law school afterwards. I wanted to be in government and politics. Uh, and then the Lord saved me. And I immediately uh, remember just thinking to myself, like, oh, man, there, there, there are bigger and grander things that I need to at least contemplate and spend my time thinking about um, than just uh, politics. So, so I kind of had politics as a religion, and then I had religion as a religion. And so I started my walk with Christ uh, in, in college and uh, decided to, to go off to law school anyways. I remember sitting down with some professors at A&M. And, and saying to them, um, oh, I'm really struggling about whether to go to seminary or law school. And looking back, I'm like 99% sure that those professors weren't even Christians. They were just professors. I just assumed that they wanted to talk to me about my newfound faith journey. And so uh, I remember having those conversations, but everyone at the time said, you can always go do seminary later, go to law school, yada, yada, yada. So ended up at law school. I think Matt and I went to the same law school at Texas Tech in Lubbock. 
and um, ended up at law school. We were a few years, uh, Matt was a few years ahead of me, I believe. And so um, in, in ended up in Lubbock. And I basically spent um, my law school career uh, kind of being bivocational. So I actually went on staff at a church as a college minister, and I was in law school. And then uh, by the time I got to my 3L year, I got my bar card and was practicing law while being on a church staff. Um, and then eventually graduated, got licensed, was married, and was practicing law in Lubbock um, through a set of circumstances at the church that we were in. And while I was in Lubbock, we were engaged in some uh, societal issues and political issues. But I was very, very interested in the legal aspect of things, but much more interested in the Christian worldview underpinnings of that. And so that's during that time is when I got connected with folks like Andrew Walker, who's a professor at Southern Seminary now, a Christian ethics professor, um, and involved in uh, uh, some organizations and obviously a friend of of mine and yours, Joseph. And so uh, I met him then, and we kind of started talking about these things then. Um, And and I started seminary then, and and through a set of circumstances, actually found an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., and so I was very torn. This was about 2011. I was very torn between whether to continue in ministry as an, an attorney minister, you know, and think about giving up the law to go into ministry full time versus going to D.C. and working on the Hill for a congressman. And ultimately just decided that D.C. was where I wanted to go. And so um, moved to Washington. And it was another one of those kind of funny providential things that, Matt, to your point about God's providence, I think God's providence is woven into all of history, but there's particular providences that you can see in your own life and in the life of the country and others. But when I was in D.C., pursuing politics was some of the most spiritually forming times of my life. Uh, So I was a member of a church in D.C. The elders up there were so encouraging. My elders at one time were uh, a chief of staff for a senator, a chief of staff for a congressman, um, a guy who I'm Worked at the State Department, but I'm pretty sure he was a CIA you know, guy, uh, and then and then and then a businessman, and and uh, these men were carrying out the ministry of the church while pursuing um, these professional careers that were very active in the in the political and social spheres. Learned so much from those men during my DC days. I started having babies. DC is an expensive place to live. It truly is a swamp, uh, and didn't want to raise my babies up there. And so my wife and I moved back to Houston the Houston area uh, in 2015. Been here ever since. I have my own law firm now uh, and uh, and uh, am engaged in kind of local politics. Uh, I, I, I'm adjacent to men like Matt who are doing the good fighting in Austin uh, and have served as general counsel for some some guys who are very involved in Austin as well. So uh, that's kind of my quick you know journey, uh, taking a few minutes there. But uh, it, it's gone from being religion as my uh, politics as my religion to actually having Christ and now trying to see how we can influence the social sphere as faithful Christians. And I think that's a great segue, Sam, to the topic of the day being the Ten Commandments. The, the one um, parenthetical I will interject here, hearing your story about uh, growing up in cultural Christianity, but not real Christianity necessarily, not being a church kid, but kind of the seeds that were, were planted there. Um, I I dare say that... Uh, Cultural Christianity is better than cultural paganism, which is kind of the alternative being provided. And I think your life is an indication of that. Um, Yeah. Though it is not salvific, it is still preferable um, for what that means for the quality of life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I said to a guy recently, um, 
Uh, and, and this was thinking about a conversation I had a couple of years ago, but I was talking to a guy recently and I just said to him, we, we live in an age where so many um, evangelical leaders and um, and, and really just uh, church kids, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, are deconstructing or you know, have been fighting this long fight against cultural Christianity as a enemy of true Christianity. And I just said to this, this guy, I said, praise the Lord for God's providence in my life that I actually was raised in a cultural context that when it was time for me to come to Christ, it was it was natural in a sense. It was supernatural, no doubt about it. But like I wasn't I wasn't going to convert to Islam. I wasn't going to convert to Hinduism. If I was going to have a religious conversion, it was going to be to the Lord Jesus, and that was because of the cultural context I was in. I'm reminded of Acts, where 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 Luke tells us that um, I, I think if I remember correctly, it's Paul in his uh, sermon on Areopagus. You know, says that God establishes our boundaries so that we may search for Him. And I just praise the Lord that in my particular providential life, God's kindness to me was to establish my boundaries in a context that when it was time for me to search and find God, it was a Christian context and not some other context. And I, I don't begrudge that at all. Yeah. Representative Schaefer, I'm going to use that as a segue and ask you specifically about the legislation, because it's interesting. Your backgrounds, I think, are helpful as we discuss this topic of the Ten Commandments. Should they be in schools? To what degree should church and state be integrated or separated? Um, all of these things. When we talk about the idea that the Ten Commandments should be required to be posted on elementary and secondary school classroom walls, What's the problem that we're trying to address there? I think that we have to teach our children the values upon which our country was founded. That should be part of their education. And we are losing that cultural Christianity, which served a purpose in our society for, for decades uh, to, to inform people about where our country came from and how it was established. And so the Ten Commandments represents uh, the underpinnings of our legal and moral foundation as a country. That's a historical fact. If you look at the origin of the United States, its development through the decades, it, it stood on the Decalogue. It stood on the principles that our founding fathers used to establish our representative democracy. And if you try to sanitize that or, or delete that from the public education system, then you're not only taking away something that's very important, but you're actually doing something that's harmful to our country's future because students will miss out on an understanding of where we came from as a as a as a country and why that that moral and civil and legal underpinning is so important to our success in the future. What's your response to the idea that well yeah that's what we were you know back in the 18th century we were majority Christians and fine but now that's not who we are we're pluralistic we have people we have become a melting pot and people from all over the world have brought their customs and cultures and certainly their religions 
And people like you should not try to impose your view of God on them in a government school classroom. Uh, I reject that. I, I think you, when you look at what the Ten Commandments represents, uh, respect other people's property. You know, take care of your parents. Uh, be faithful to your wife. Uh, th these are essentials. Th these are not negotiable principles. And I can actually take you through things like the probate code, uh, tort law. I, I can I can show you things in our laws on the books today that have their origin in the Ten Commandments. These things have not disappeared. They're still here. They're still part of our current jurisprudence. Bring your culture with you, okay? But we want you to adopt American values. And the Ten Commandments has a historical and, and practical purpose even today. That, I mean, if everybody lived by the Ten Commandments, I don't care what religion or culture uh, or background you bring, we would have a more peaceful and prosperous society in the United States without question. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Sam? In response to Matt's uh, comments, uh, kind of two things. One is the irony that the Supreme Court of the United States at the very center of the mural on top of the Supreme Court that's carved into the stone of the Supreme Court sets Moses with the tablets in his hand as an indication uh, at the time of the, of, the, of, the, of the creation of that of that building that we recognize that there was a lawgiver and that we are a nation of laws. And so we are not a nation of, of laws that are uh, purely positive in that in that we just kind of create willy-nilly whatever we think, though that certainly you know may be the case in some situations. But we actually acknowledge that there is a transcendent and eternal law and a lawgiver, namely uh, Yahweh, namely God, who gives uh, the Ten Commandments with Moses. And isn't ironic that the Supreme Court has that in their own uh, uh, edifice, uh, but historically has a disallowed uh, those Ten Commandments be posted in public schools uh, in, yeah. in, in, in in spots throughout the, the U.S. And so um, and, and just I wanna, thinking through those issues, yeah. I, I want to go directly there, Sam, because there's, there's a couple components here. Because you mentioned 1980, Stone v. Graham, the Supreme Court rules that a Kentucky law that required the Ten Commandments to be posted violated the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. That's and right. that is precisely what this Texas law is trying to do. So there's two parts of this. How can the Supreme Court, with the Ten Commandments on the wall behind them, say that it is a violation of the Establishment Clause to post the Ten Commandments in yeah. a in a government in in a school? But secondly, does that not why is does that not make this Texas law automatically unconstitutional? Yeah, let me just speak to a couple points there. Um, the, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence, First Amendment Establishment Clause jurisprudence in the United States has, since uh, at least the 1970s, probably going back to the 1960s, been a complete mess, right? So um, some of the listeners, and I know Joseph and Matt, you're familiar with the Lemon Test uh, from Lemon v. Kurtz, and uh, it was this three-pronged test that was essentially made up uh, it was a, an amalgamation of, uh, of 1960s uh, court rulings that essentially said that that um, uh, an establishment occurred 
uh, an establishment, a government establishment of religion occurs when uh, there's no secular purpose to whatever the act is. There's no, uh, the, the principal or primary effects has to do with coercing religion. And then it's a, an excessive entanglement. So basically secular purpose, principal uh, effects or primary effects and excessive entanglement. It is this unworkable amalgamation of ideas that has just really been a bad uh, a bad uh, a line of jurisprudence in the Stone they B. Just Graham got rid case. Of, right? uh, yeah, as I was saying, the Stone B. Graham case was 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 ruled uh, under the Lemon Test, but in 2021, the Supreme Court, thankfully, basically set aside it, it, it gutted it in relation to uh, to the Cross Monument up in I believe Maryland area. So so I think that the Texas law uh, that was proposed in the Senate, passed the Senate, passed the House committees ultimately failed in the House in Texas, uh, is essentially trying to ride that wave that lemon, the lemon test is gone now. And so there's a, there's an opening for historical expressions of religious uh, identity or religious um, ethics. And, and that's what we're going for. And, and, you know, we could talk about 2005 when the Supreme Court uh, handed down two, uh, uh, two, two uh, opinions, uh, one in Kentucky and one in Texas, that said Kentucky couldn't post the Ten Commandments in public buildings, but Texas could have a Ten Commandments monument on the Capitol grounds. And they, the Lemon Test led to these two very bizarre you know, outcomes on the exact same day. But the good news is that Lemon Test is essentially dead. And this Texas law is, I think, one of the first laws to kind of take up this question again and hopefully it has more light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, one day we may have to do something on how the Supreme Court is healing itself. I mean, over the last four years, we've just seen so many. You talk about the lemon test being on the ash heap of history, like Roe versus Wade is on the ash heap of history. Now we have yeah. affirmative action, kind of benevolent racism is on the ash heap of history. Um, so we've got all sorts of things that the Supreme Court is doing differently. We're all lawyers that might bore uh, some of our audience, of course. But to the, to the topic at hand, Representative Schaefer, I want to ask you, this idea that we are going to um, require schools to post the Ten Commandments, is it different in your mind, this idea that, yeah, we're all Christians, frankly, we're all Americans. Not a lot of people are going to look at the Ten Commandments and and, and are going to say, yeah, I, I hate all of that. People should steal, people should murder, people should cheat on their spouses, right? It's not like this sentimental, I oppose the Ten Commandments. There's just this American secularist, like, principle that we've been uh, catechized with, that anything with some kind of religious heritage is inherently suspect, and we shouldn't put it on the walls of our schools and, and, and teach children these things. Is there a difference between commending something as admirable and good, and then the government saying, this must be posted because we like it? Where's that line for you? Well, let's put this question in context uh, in, in the world. If you went to India, Pakistan uh, or Indonesia, huge populations of the world would laugh at us if they were listening to this conversation. They would say, of course, we're going to take the values that our country was established upon and put them in the classroom, in the madrasas, uh, in, in the Muslim world. They, they would not even be ashamed of it. They would just they would laugh at us if we didn't do it. And so when you look at a public school, we have this notion of being secular, so we set aside religion, but the idea that public schools do not transmit values 
is silly. Our public schools can, will, and do transmit values. You may not have a pastor uh, as the principal, but you're transmitting values. And so there is something that is going to fill that void. And so why not take the founding principles of our country that have made us successful, that have protected people's rights, that have protected families, that have uh, helped us have a peaceful, prosperous society, and put them on the walls in our classroom and say, this is who we are as a country. These are good values. Embrace those values. These are values at the core. Absolutely, there's a religious component to that. But the, there's also a, a religious nature, a religious fervor that is coming from the left when it comes to abortion, when it comes to climate hysteria. Um, there's all sorts of things that um, are, are, have almost reached the category of, of religious in nature that are being welcomed. The LGBTQ uh, fervor that the left has right now. You, you Pride can't Month is a religious holiday. Religious. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost a, a religious holiday in places like Austin Ice. So yeah, I, I am disappointed this failed uh, in the Texas House. In our House chamber, on the floor of the Texas House, above the dais where the speaker stands, it says, in God we trust. It didn't say, it doesn't say, in Allah we trust. It doesn't say, in Buddha we trust. It says, in God we trust. And we know that is the historical God of the Bible. That, that is the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible that is represented uh, in those words in the House chamber. So we can try to forget who we are, but we, we do so at our detriment. Do you think that means, because, you know, Texas is stereotypically Christian, and I'm sure the census data shows that it still remains majority Christian, but, you know, you have places in America that no longer are. What's your response? You know, if the people in Dearborn, Michigan got together and voted to give the Quran to everybody in a public school, to all the children, because these are our community values, uh, would that bother you? Well, I don't usually get worried about, uh, as a Christian, okay, I'm, I'm going to speak that way here. I don't worry about other religions being exposed to children because I, I know what is the truth and I know what is superior. And I know that uh, salvation belongs to the Lord and, and he chooses who will be saved and who will not. Uh, and so I don't, I'm not afraid of the competition of ideas, but I, I want that. I want the Christian values to be have equal footing everywhere. And I want them to be, uh, the, the Ten Commandments to be able to be exposed to children in a public school. And so, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say, uh, I, I do believe that we should be neutral, right? Uh, in the sense that we're not going to prohibit someone. Uh, but I, I don't put Islam and the Quran uh, on the same footing historically as the Bible or the Ten Commandments. So I, I do I want think to pick up on if you were trying, well, let me finish that one thought. I don't think if you were going into court, the Quran versus the Ten Commandments, that you could make the same arguments that we're making because it's not part of our history and tradition. 
Yeah. For either one of you, and, and you, Representative Schaefer, you just used the word, you know, we should be neutral. And there's different ways we can mean that. But is it actually possible for a classroom, for a school, for a country to achieve neutrality in a religious sense? I think there's a way to be uh, fair. You know, not all the religions are, are, are equal, right? There are some religions that we could all, even Muslims and Hindus and Christians could say, you know, someone who believed in child sacrifice, whatever, they have some extreme aspects of it that you said that, that not, not all religions are equal. Uh, but in the, the sense that you are not going to allow government to establish that this is the religion. You know, you go back to that old phrase, a freedom of religion, but not freedom from religion. Right. So this idea that government could walk around stiff arming everyone, you know, you've got a child in one arm and you're stiff arming every religious uh, person from coming close to that child. You can't do that. That, that. That's not possible. But I think what government has to do is avoid hostility uh, to religion. And, and to the extent that you say the word neutral is, is that you're not trying to take one religion and establish it uh, as what the government tells people they must adhere to. Yeah, and I, th I think the difference there, uh, Joseph and Matt, is that this bill in Texas is simply saying that a public school classroom must display the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say that the public school classroom must require the children to stand up and recite them and believe them. It doesn't say that the public school teacher has to teach through them, um, do a Bible study with them. Uh, and that's not what the law requires. This law simply requires to be posted. And, and so to your, to your question, what I would say to Dearborn, Michigan, is I would say if the state of Michigan allows for local municipalities or school districts to make decisions like putting Qurans in their local school district uh, for historical and religious text study, uh, then, then by all means, they have the liberty to do so. In the state of Texas, our state legislature, in the Senate in particular, uh, and in the House, I would say, for the most part, um, are representatives of the people who are willing to establish uh, are willing to pass laws that establish this, this principle that we can post the Ten Commandments in public school classrooms without coercing anybody to believe it, to uh, confess it, uh, to study it even. It's just simply there. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why that's historically true is that, as Matt has said well over and over again, that in this country, there is a very uh, uh, well-established Christian heritage that, that harkens back to an ethical principle of the Ten Commandments. But even more than that, kind of on more of a theological you know, type of a, a question, is that we have to have a transcendent basis for our civil laws, lest our civil laws be nothing but power grabs, which is what we're seeing in American society today is this power struggle because we have no transcendent uh, a law that we're appealing to. And actually the Abrahamic traditions of, of Ju Judaism and Islam and Christianity would all have or should all have no problem saying, yeah, these Ten Commandments, they represent uh, a summary of what is God's eternal law by which we're all uh, accountable to, uh, kind of regardless of your religious commitment. 
Uh, and some may call that natural law. Some may call it divine law. I'm reminded of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail whenever he appeals to God's divine law uh, and says, he quotes Augustine and says that any civil law that's contrary to divine law is an unjust law. Amen to Martin Luther King Jr. And frankly, I can't believe I would ever amen something he would say, but I am amening everything he's saying in that in that statement. Well, I think that's, a, you know, your your idea that we have to appeal to a transcendent law is really fundamental. Um, the increasing, because if there is no transcendent basis in law, if there's no ultimate truth that we are acknowledging and that we are surrendering ourselves to, it's just all opinion. And we're just all making it up. And there's this great irony that we as a culture who we we say we are fighting for equality among human beings as ferociously as we all claim to be are also fighting for secularism as ferociously as we can. And those two things are completely in conflict. And we don't necessarily recognize this because look around. If we are not equal because we are created equal in God's image, we are not in fact equal. We are not equally capable. We are not equally intelligent. We are not equally talented. Uh, We are not equal when it comes to our capacity, right? We are not equally healthy. You can do things that I can't do. And there are lots of people, not part of this conversation, who can do things that none of us can do. So we are not equal in a practical sense. And so as we, if we reject the premise that we are equal because we are created in the image of God, then we are not equal. And we go back to where we were long before the Judeo-Christian worldview introduced the idea of human equality based on being created in the image of God. And where we were before that is might makes right. Whatever Caesar says is true because he's the, and he has the biggest sword. And if you disagree with him, he's going to cut your head off. And so the strongest right. guy in the room is the right guy in the room. We shouldn't want to revert back to paganism, right? If progressives on the left really want progress, then we need to progress in the way of righteousness. And the only way of righteousness that we have that's revealed to us uh, is in the Ten Commandments and all that is taught to us in Scripture uh, in the New Testament. And so um, I think that we should all be able to get on board with those things. And if you don't want to progress in righteousness, then you're progressing some other way. And that's contrary to what the founding values of this nation is. And why is it that we should um, we should prefer an atheism or an agnosticism or a secularism in our public square to the righteousness revealed to us in the Ten Commandments, and then ultimately the righteousness revealed to us in the Lord Jesus himself? And the point there is there is really no neutral ground. You are That's moving right. one direction or another. You're never staying still. Neutrality in a value sense um, just doesn't ever exist. And Representative Schaefer, you made that point. But I want to ask you, I think what's going to end up being the final question here for our conversation, this has gone quickly. But Representative Schaefer, I know that a lot of people probably in this debate have accused you and others who support this this idea of being Christian nationalists. What does that even mean to you? And does that bother you? I think it's kind of a silly label. Uh, it's a label that's being used by the left to just try to shut down debate. Uh, and it's really a pejorative term that they're using. Honestly, if there is such a thing as Christian nationalism, it's an utter failure. <laughs> it's just not working, right? Because if you look at where our country has been headed, uh, at least culturally, um, 
it's been away from Christian values, where uh, the LGBTQ movement has been ascendant. Uh, and and I honestly think that most Christians have no clue how close we are to confrontation with our own government, to law-abiding Christians going about their business, living their daily lives, having to make choices that they never imagined in our country. I think that we are one federal agency uh, decision away, one court ruling away uh, from having to decide whether you're going to keep your job, whether you're going to run your business the way you run your business, whether you're going to be able to run your Christian nonprofit, your faith-based nonprofit the way uh, your mission calls for, or abiding by government edict. We're really close because if you look at what's happening with, for instance, the uh, transgender and LGBTQ issue legally, they are trying to take that concept and drop it right into the civil rights statutes. Those civil rights statutes come with a division at the FBI that defend them. They come with severe civil and even criminal sanctions for violation. And if you're now going to adopt this new definition of sex and put it into the civil rights statutes, you are now on a course for a confrontation in our culture, in our country that Christians have never imagined, never imagined. We're very close to that. And so we're really Matt, have Matt to- it's what it's what Governor DeSantis says about weaponizing the federal government. That's exactly what you're talking about. That's right. Gentlemen, there's so much more to say on this, but we are sadly out of time. Um, you've got other things you have to do in your life. This is a um, this is an ongoing conversation. I appreciate your your contributions to this, and uh, I know that the people who are, are listening today have been uh, educated and encouraged. Um, and thank you for your just your your lives and your example and in, in being in in public policy and being an elected official comes with a real cost, and we are grateful for the the sacrifice that you and your family have made representative Schaefer to do that. And and Sam Webb, we appreciate you as well. Thank you both for uh, being with us. Let's do it again sometime. Matt Schaefer is one of the good guys. Hey, yes, he is. uh, Thank you to the work of the family research council. It was actually, I didn't mention this, but it was actually formative uh, in my college years. I I listened to them on the radio and and even tried to get an internship there once. So uh, keep up the good work. Well, we would take you anytime. I know a guy, so come on in. And, you know, if you if you get bored. And friends, thank you for joining us for this conversation. We greatly appreciate you. You are the reason we have this conversation each and every week. We look forward to meeting you next time. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.